going full circle here. Gridlock. Now, we took a look since 1950. When you have a Republican president and when there's a split Congress like we have right now, 15.7% annual return for the S&P 500, which is the strongest potential out of the three scenarios under a Republican president. Gridlock's the highest one for stocks. And you look at Democrats, Democrats also do quite well when there's gridlock as well. From LPL Financial, welcome to Market Signals. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. Hello, Ryan. Hey, John. How are you doing today? Doing wonderfully, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. This should be a fun podcast. We've talked all year about the midterms. And they're finally here. Not saying I'm glad they're over, but now we can focus I on am. what. Okay, you said it, not me. <laughs> but um, you know, we can talk about what they mean and and how it all plays out. But you know, obviously, this is a last week was a very big week for the United States for equity markets for the economy, and we're gonna have a lot of fun discussing kind of how it all intertwines and what what it all means for investors really here. Absolutely, there was a, a lot of concern as we discussed throughout the year. Uh, you know, we had three 10% market corrections. The first was based on a wage fear. The second was based on the tariff fear. And I'd attribute the bulk of the October sell-off to really uncertainty about the election. And uh, clearly the people have spoken. Uh, the consensus forecast came true, um, which is typical of uh, midterm elections. The, the party of the sitting president typically loses 28 seats on average. And as the dust continues to settle, it looks like uh, the Democratic Party has gained 34 seats and uh, now has the majority in the lower chamber of Congress. So uh, the market and the immediate aftermath responded favorably, right? The Dow was up more than 500 points the day following the election because gridlock is good. If Gordon Gecko said greed is good, I think the markets are saying that gridlock is good. What do you think about that? No, you're right, John. I want to say one other thing before I get to that. You think about 2014, last time I had a midterm, mm -hmm. what happened? People forget this, right? I mean, it was four yeah. years ago. Mm -hmm. There was a really big sell-off in October, and then a nice V-bottom middle of October, and then a rally at the end of the year. I think two years ago, nine-day losing streak for the S&P 500, one of the longest losing streaks ever, directly ahead of the November 2016 election. Once the uncertainty of that election got out of the way, we had a rally. So once again, we had the worst October in right. years, as you and I talked about in last week's podcast. Could the stage be set for potentially another year-end rally? Well, history says weakness ahead of an election is normal and then some strength. So that's kind of something to think about. But building on that, gridlock is good. You know, we've played with the numbers and looked at it historically speaking. You know, maybe I'll ask, go back to you for a second, John. I mean, why is gridlock good? I mean, yes, I'm going to get to the numbers in a second. But to me, You know, I think there are a couple of things going on. Uh, more often than not, you get a new president, they, they enact some policies, and whether demand-driven or supply-driven, you kind of get a boost, but with the boost tends to be a deficit issue or some other issue that tends to alarm the opposing party. So more often than not, you get that boost because as the president loses or has a comeuppance right. with losing so many seats, you know, the market tends to discount the president's reaction to that, whether it's further Keynesian or demand-driven policies or monetarism or supply-driven policies. Either way, the market tends to discount that future growth as the party sitting in the White House tries to grease the skids for the next for the economy going into the next election. So everybody feels good about that. No, that's right. I mean, we've talked about this before, but going back to World War II, 12 months after the date of the midterm election, the S&P has been higher every single time, 18 out of 18 times. So this is not something that just started recently. This has been going on for quite a long time where they have that comeuppance, 
They try to do things. The president will try to do things potentially to, you know, get the economy going, get more confidence going, and get reelected in two years as well. And that can all lead to positives. But, you know, get now maybe going full circle here, gridlock. You know, we took a look since 1950. When you have a Republican president and when there's a split Congress like we have right now, 15.7% annual return for the S&P 500, which is the strongest potential uh, out of the three scenarios under Republican president, gridlock's the highest one for stocks. And you look at Democrats, Democrats also do quite well when there's gridlock as well. So, you know, we know we had a Republican president. The best scenario, his, looking at history, is that uh, split Congress, and that's what everyone expected. So the contrarian in me thought, hey, everyone's been talking about this for a long time. Maybe we sell off. The fact that we didn't sell off initially after the election is um, is encouraging, I think. Yeah, I think to the degree that, you know, gridlock is good, I think there's a mentality that as long as the pendulum doesn't swing too far in, right. any, in any one direction, I, I, I believe there's a comfort factor there that investors tend to embrace and because obviously there are uh, a lot to consider with with a new Congress, you know, we're, we're, this podcast is solely focused on the midterms. But I think we should highlight for our listeners what that means for policy, for the economy, for interest rates and fixed income, and finally the equity market. So, from a policy standpoint, you know, the market appears historically to say gridlock is good. And with that fifteen point seven percent average annual return, that also is uh, favorable for investors. But Clearly, it's not always it's, roses. That's right, John. So I know where we're going with this next is, hey, we pointed out some positives. Right. There are always something to trip you up. There's always potential negatives. John, tell us a few of those potentially things that are keeping you – hopefully it's not keeping you up too late at night, but maybe keeping you up a little bit. What should we worry about? Yeah, I fell asleep in the chair at 9.30 last night. I don't know why I was up so late. Where you? <laughs> <laughs> you made it You made it past murder, she wrote? That's right. <laughs> no, I watched the Panthers lose to the – Oh, my goodness. We didn't even talk about your Panthers. Right. Yeah, you yeah. went to the game last Sunday. I think you jinxed them. That was the peak. That was That's the cycle right. peak for the Panthers. That's John exactly Lynch right. went to the game. Oh, so sorry. I, I, that was I'll rough I'll sell my night. tickets for next weekend. Yeah, boy, oh, boy. Yeah, but back to uh, back to business, Ryan. Yes. Uh, on the uh, policy standpoint, uh, a couple of favorable things I think investors need to be aware of. You know, campaigning is always exceedingly different from governing. And hearing some of, you know, the extreme on either party campaign, I think you're, what you're going to see, not only during this lame duck Congress over the next handful of weeks, but ne- next January when the, I believe it's the 116th Congress convenes, I think you're going to see the parties are a lot closer together on trade and infrastructure spending than the consensus appreciated over the course of the past year. Uh, infrastructure was a big deal coming into uh, coming out of the 2016 election. Right. They were throwing numbers over a trillion dollar infrastructure package. Uh, I don't. I don't think we're seeing anything approaching that. But to the degree the right and the left comes together on uh, infrastructure, it's a job creator. It can help. You know, my son's a civil engineer, so I'm all Ooh. about. <laughs> there you go. I'm all about infrastructure spending. Now that he's off the payroll. Uh, but I think you're going to see something from an infrastructure spending deal, not not approaching the trillion-dollar number, but I think you're going to see something because each, each side can grab a win there. I also believe that you're going to see, as we described earlier this week, a less onerous but more quickly achieved trade package or trade deal, whether it's NAFTA 2.0 or certainly with the Chinese. One of the big things about the market uh, recovering so well during the third quarter, during the summer months, was that the administration, as we've discussed previously, decided not to fight a multi-front trade war, right? So we made progress with Europe and Japan and South Korea, Mexico, Canada, finally Canada and Europe. So to the degree that it's just China, you know, we'll we'll have uh, President Xi and President Trump uh, meet over the next handful of weeks and hopefully we'll get, you know, some positive signals from that. So I'm not convinced trade and and infrastructure are going to be 
too, too much of a challenge, but I think it's fair to say that deficit spending fears uh, are going to be a big issue, heightened scrutiny of the administration uh, to the degree that escalates, and really the budget battle and what that means for market interest rates, because the Democratic Congress is likely to use, uh, whether it's an attempt to increase the, the federal minimum wage, the, the minimum mm-hmm. wage uh, from a net federal standpoint, uh, there'll be issues relative to increased spending for National Institutes of Health, for example, uh, but it really comes down to the, the debt ceiling debate, and that will likely ratchet up during the summer months before uh, Congress uh, takes their break. But I think you're going to see... Uh, you know, very heated debate there. So you're saying all the drama about politics isn't over. Absolutely. And I think that's something that investors need to keep in mind because I don't want to be dismissive of political headline risk, but I think it's going to be important for investors not to uh, trade on rhetoric, but rather invest on the underlying fundamentals, really supporting economic growth. Because in our view, you know, while both parties are trying to claim some sort of pyrrhic victory mm-hmm. <laughs> from, right, exactly. from uh, last week's uh, election, uh, our view is that from an economic standpoint, a lot of the fiscal tailwinds supporting the economy in 2018 are still very much in play. And we don't believe at risk uh, for 2019, because the, the 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 deals are already in place for reduced regulation, uh, government spending. It's a 300 billion dollar package that they signed. I guess it was last February, March, and uh, call it 150 billion or so in fiscal 2018, and another 150 billion or so in uh, 2019. And then also from the tax cut standpoint, you have uh, repatriation still coming back over from overseas profits coming back into the U.S. uh, to the degree that immediate expensing is still in play. And if if last week's vote got businesses thinking about, okay, how do we extend this cycle, potentially losing this stuff in 2021, let's perhaps accelerate this five-year deal that was signed in the uh, 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So the consumer is going to have AMT uh, Mm -hmm. refunds this year more than they had last year. So if the consumer and small businesses gets, call it $200 billion uh, this year, you throw in the $80 billion on uh, immediate expensing, that's 275 or 280 have the 150 in government spending. You're looking north of four, $425 billion in stimulus. Yeah, I will say this. I went to my tax person maybe about a month ago, and we kind of went through just get a rough draft on what it looked like. And I'll put it this way, John, I'm going to get a lot more for my kids. There's also a good credit for kids. I'm like, I've got three of them, so right. there's a little bit more money Seems coming like back with Seems like six when I see you walk in in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, it feels like that, I'll tell you what. Well, I've got two dogs. I guess mm-hmm. they, they're more destructive than anything. But, um, you know, you talk about the economy. So one other thing to note, when you have the Republican president with a split Congress, Going back to 1950, that's actually the strongest GDP growth as well. So we're talking about economy and infrastructure spending, how that can help things. Something to think about. Mm-hmm. It's good for stocks, but it's also been good for the economy. But, you know, really last week, John, I'd say we probably could put a bow on earnings season. You know, there's always earnings coming out, but for the most part, earnings seasons are over. You know, according to facts that data, we're looking at almost 25, 26% year-over-year earnings growth in the third quarter. We keep talking about peak earnings and earnings are, you know, in the first quarter and second quarter up around 24, 25%. Well, it continues to come in really good, and we're looking at over 20% earnings growth this year. Next year, looking at about 10% earnings growth. But what I really thought was interesting about October is a couple things. First off, it was a rough month, but you look at the yield curve, the yield curve actually steepened. Remember in the beginning of the year when the yield curve flattened, right. everyone was so worried. Well, the yield curve steepened. We had the worst month in uh, 
in, in years. So that's something to think about. Uh, but, you know, potentially there's just there's still these positives out there. When you talk about earnings, what did companies say about 2019 expected earnings the month of October? Normally you see that go down a couple percent, those those forward estimates. They were virtually flat. If a good portion of the month is of Jeff Bookbinder, our market strategist, noted earnings actually increased for 2019. Now, in the end, they were about flat, which is really a good sign. So we're talking about all these concerns out of Washington and policy. John, I'll put you put the ball on the tee. What drives long-term stock gains for the most part? Absolutely. It's, it's earnings. All about earnings. Yeah. It's all about earnings and interest rates. That's and, right. Uh, you know, before I get into earnings, just you know, talk about the Federal Reserve also. That uh, equation doesn't change. You know, uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell, as you talked about with that steepening we experienced of the yield curve, again, a steepening of the yield curve is when uh, 10-year rises faster than the two-year. And uh, so we saw a steepening for the better part of the past year, everyone was con- obsessed with a flattening of the yield curve. And even though the Fed had been raising since December 2015, so I thought it was curious that in early October, Fed Chair Jay Powell said the right. economic outlook in the U.S. was remarkably positive, right? And then the curve steepened and the market sold off. October 3rd, that right. day, that's when the volatility, we, as we said, we went the entire quarter of the third quarter without a 1% move up or down for the first time since 1963. Jay Powell mentioned the comment you said, and that opened up the floodgates for a lot, pretty much a good sell-off, but also a lot of volatility the month of October. I'm glad you call him Jay. I still refer to him as Jerome, so you must be pretty tight with him, huh? We, well, you know... Well, didn't Jeff and Barry meet him? Do you call him Jay Bird? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah they, they were at the lunch. Where exactly. He made those I think comments. we're first name first name comments. That's now, right. I guess, that's so. right. Uh, but yeah, from a, from a Federal Reserve standpoint, if you see three and a half or four percent economic growth these last couple of quarters, I think December is a uh, uh, likely that you're going to see another rate hike. Uh, but I'm not convinced, and we're not convinced when we meet with all our research analysts and the whole team. Uh, we're not convinced rates are going to be as high as the market fears next year. I think some of these budget battles may uh, dampen sentiment, and to the degree it dampens mm-hmm. sentiment, you know, it's going to dampen demand. Right. Yeah. The, 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 the one of the big events last week was just that the Fed had an interest rate decision or non-decision, I guess, on mm-hmm. Thursday, which to me caught me. Seems like they're usually on Wednesday, but for whatever reason, last week was a Thursday, totally under the radar. I think the election had something to do with that. Ryan, that's a good. So you know what? That's that's a good point. So there you go. That's why. But it was it was probably the least excitable or the least looked forward to um, Fed decision that I can recall in a long time because everyone knew nothing was going to happen. And what did they say? They didn't say too much. And right. as Barry, Barry Gilbert, uh, market strategist and portfolio manager on the team, mentioned, the statement keeps getting kind of smaller. You know, right. Jay Powell or Jerome Powell continues to shorten that statement and get more to the point. And uh, as, as someone, I kind of appreciate that. But that market took it in stride. You know what, what the Fed said. Now we're focusing more on these big fundamental things. Absolutely, and we're um, looking at we're looking at only two hikes next year. Right. We suspect a terminal rate, Fed funds rate for this cycle at about three percent, and uh, I think that's going to be very good to get back to the other point you mentioned about earnings. You know, if if earnings are the long term driver for stock prices, if you're discounting those earnings, which happen to be record earnings. If you're discounting those near historic lows in interest right. rates, even though we've been raising rates since December 15, they're still historically low. Uh, that's and that's positive for present and future value of that earning stream. No, exactly. So, John, we've talked a little bit about rates here. 
Now, what does it all mean for fixed income as we head into 2019? What should investors be looking for? Maybe where should they be positioning fixed income portfolios in 2019 after everything we've been talking about with the election that just happened? Yeah, uh, the bull market and bonds may be over. Uh, I'm not convinced the bear market and bonds have begun. I mean, the bull market and bonds only lasted, what, 37, 38 years? That's right. You know, it had, to, exactly. <laughs> it had to end sometime. Literally, the course of my career was a, a bull market and bonds. Um, but I think it's important for investors to recognize that because of not only domestic but global central banking policy over the past decade, you know, there's typically a dynamic or an income generation phase of the credit cycle where essentially investors can clip coupons. And to the mm-hmm. degree that's lasted three or four quarters over the past several cycles, you know, no one really knows how long that can last when the Fed has quintupled the size of its balance sheet. So when we're positioning fixed income portion of our investors' diversified portfolios, you know, even if you have to factor in deficit spending issues. And for example, if uh, a Democratic Congress is able to push through a change in that state and local tax deduction, the SALT deal, you know, that may be a slight positive for uh, munis. Uh, from a treasury standpoint, we're still going to underway or less than benchmark on treasuries. We still think treasuries can provide liquidity and income, help smooth out volatility during periods of equity market weakness. But nonetheless, uh, we're going to position portfolios uh, less on interest rate risk and more on credit risk. Okay, that sounds good, John. Certainly favor you know investment grade corporates. Exactly. So let, let maybe so that's that's a fixed income thing. I mean, anything else you have on rates or fixed income? We turn a literally turn a page on that. I think it's going to be a, a just a gradual nudge higher. Mm-hmm. Right. If we've been focusing on a, you know a range on the benchmark ten year Treasury from say two seventy five to three and a quarter in twenty eighteen, mm-hmm. I think investors can prepare for a range of you know three twenty five to three seventy five. With the risk probably on the downside, you know, if the Fed does indeed, exactly. If they, if mm-hmm. they, you know, if our forecast is correct and they they slow down right around three percent, you know, we may not, we may hit three seventy five, but we may not hold it for a long time. Right. So let's let's shift gears in um, to to equities. You know, obviously there's various sectors, and we've seen some of the reports have come out. We've obviously written about them. We talked about last week on LPLResearch.com, our blog, right after the results came out. We had a client-approved blog that went out that talked about what sectors could benefit, maybe struggle. In this week's weekly market commentary, as well here at Elpa Research, we talked again about a lot of the things you and I are talking about right, right. now. Mm-hmm. Summarized, the, you know, kind of what the election means and where investments can go. I mean, so John, maybe I'll just kind of ask you a couple different sectors, and if you can give you know a couple bullet points. I mean, industrials. I mean, that's mm-hmm. been the big one. We kind of hinted that already. What, right. what should what could industrials do for investors in 2019 after the results last week? Well, I think. Uh We've had tailwinds already for industrials. A major headwind clearly was trade, right? So that kind of right. slowed down. You know, we may have had a fundamentally prescient argument to overweight industrials, but once the tariff thing came down, uh, that became humbling for us and our investors on that uh, industrial call. But I do believe that when you think about the CapEx cycle and how businesses have that incentive to invest now because of the immediate expensing provision of the recent tax cuts, uh, you know, the length of the expansion, if businesses were really just, if they invested at all, they invested in chips and software, right, to maintain mm-hmm. market share. But now they're going out and attaining new market share. I know some of that money clearly is going to go back for dividends and share buybacks, but to the degree they take advantage of that immediate expensing provision, uh, that, that bodes well for the industrial space. The repatriation bodes well for it also. The tax right. situation bodes well for it. Uh, but the infrastructure spending deal uh, could be, if you will, the 2018 midterm 
support for that space. So we're still favorable on industrials. And like you said, I think it's maybe out of everything we're going to talk about, the one thing that maybe both parties are more aligned on than anything. I mean, most exactly people right. agree that the mm-hmm. country could use the infrastructure spending, which should benefit industrials yeah, overall. Everybody wins on that one. That's right. So healthcare is obviously the other big one. Uh, healthcare for this year has been a real true market leader. Done mm-hmm. really, really well for momentum trade, has some decent earnings, looks good technically. You know, after the elections, what should investors think about healthcare in 2019? Can this rally continue, I guess, is the bottom line. Yeah, I was uh, uh, being interviewed by one of the major media sources. Uh, oh, don't on, be so humble. On, uh, well, it was radio because I have a face for radio and go. a face for podcasts. <laughs> um, the day of the election, so before the results out, and my comment was that, well, of all the 11 sectors in the S&P 500, healthcare is like Geneva mm-hmm. because either way, there's a benefit tomorrow. And what happened was that managed care and hospital stocks look like they'll do better with a, rep- with a Democratic Congress or uh, House of Representatives, uh, major pharmaceuticals may be under further scrutiny for pricing pressures. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you were kind of back and forth there. But your point about right. the healthcare space, you know, we've still been market weight that, but again, market weight is what, 10 or 12% of the index. So uh, our, our, our investors are very much exposed to that area. But when you have those, and that's really important, um, I like to hire analysts who have a little right and left brain, mm-hmm. you know, and we've done a good job with that, having, you know, PhDs and CFAs and, you know, journalism majors and CFAs. So you right. have that left and right brain thing. And I think the healthcare space really kind of has that left and right brain thing as well. Uh, if you want to consider, you know, the benefit of a defensive characteristic, right? But there's also a growth characteristic because of the demographics. Oh, it's interesting. That's right. So th- I'm going to lump these two together because they're kind of the same. Well, they're not the same, but they've got a potential tailwind. Energy and financial services. Obviously, a big reason to like either of those was deregulation. Mm-hmm. You know, the the party in power, Republicans, tend to want more deregulation, which should help energy, and it definitely should help financial services. Both of those have struggled, though, a little bit lately. Uh, what do you think for 2019 on energy first, maybe, and in financial services second? Yeah, I think the call on energy is is deregulation, but the deregulation in energy is is pretty much executive order. So I'm not convinced that last week's election really is going to have much of an impact there. Right. The bigger issue, obviously, you know, the geopolitical risks throughout the Mideast, for example, you know, you never want to say it's different this time, but what's different this time is that the U.S. is now the global, the world swing producer in oil. So... To, even with the Iranian sanctions, for example, you know, oil slipped into a bear market last week, right? Oh, WTI slipped, about that next. slipped mm-hmm. down 20%. That's right. And even with potential threats in uh, Libya and Nigeria, Venezuela, now the Iranian sanctions, what's happening? The U.S. is cranking out more. The Saudis are cranking out more. And, uh, you know, the cure for higher oil prices is higher oil prices because production accelerates. Right. And then I think that's why we've seen this massive pullback in, what, five weeks? Yeah, if, I'll, if that. I'll, I'll just chime in. So crude actually had a nine-day losing streak recently, mm-hmm. you know, one of the longest ever, longest in a long time, I guess I'll word it like that, and just reached a bear market, which means down 20% from the recent high. And purely getting technical, if you look at crude for about six months, it's traded between $65 a barrel and $75 a barrel. Every time I look, it's right around there. Mm-hmm. Well, it broke that $65 level. So from a purely technical point of view, crude oil kind of broke a big level. And, and as, as we said, it down nine days and it had a nine-day losing streak and looks uh, fairly weak. And there's that fundamental reason, uh, a lot more production than we had in the past. So that's energy. So that's a dynamic that yes. investors need to be mindful of when you when you think about some of these other challenges. Why, are, why is oil 
falling with right. all these geopolitical threats. Yeah. And nonetheless, it's and we're we're more efficient at coming online now, right? Because of uh, the, the major technological improvements in drilling. So, so financials now. Obviously, you know the the steepening, the flattening yield curve has kind of held the group back. Yes, we have higher yields across the board, but overall, financials haven't probably done as well as I think most of us would have liked or would have hoped. Uh, deregulation still there. You know, Randy Quarles, obviously. Um, well, tell us who's the biggest Im- impact you think for uh, financials? Is it Quarles or is it the current Fed chairman? Yeah, Jerome Powell or Randall Quarles, and I, I think. At this point, it's probably Randall Quarles. And who is he again? Just Randall so Quarles is the vice chair of supervision right. at the Fed. Now, uh, Rich Clarita is the vice chair of the Federal Reserve. Uh, he's, if you will, the number two to Jerome Powell. Randall Quarles, though, took over for Daniel Tarullo from a supervision standpoint. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's the one famous for reducing the stress and the stress test. Right. So to the degree, and I think this is why financials have slowed down, because the fear of tariffs and that potential impact on economic growth, that weighed on the group from a standpoint of not only was the flattening curve pressuring net interest margins, which is a primary driver of bank earnings, for example, but also to the degree that growth was slowing down, you were not going to have that uh, benefit from the improvement in lending capacity. You know, you can have all the lending capacity if you want, but if no one borrows, it doesn't doesn't do you any good. (laughs) So uh, I think that was part of the dynamic there. But yeah, we're still favorable. Looking purely at the fund, the technicals don't look too good. They do find support periodically, and I think that's helpful. Uh, but more important, if you look at the valuations, if you look at the yield, if you look at the uh, earnings growth potential, uh, they had paid higher taxes than many other sectors, so there's a benefit there as well. And uh, to the degree we see a slight nudging higher in in the yield curve, uh, I, I don't know if we should even call it a steepening yield curve for 2019, but let's call it a less flat yield curve. I was going to say less flat. That's right. Uh, in 2019, because there there are dynamics that you know beyond you know the domestic economy that Jerome Powell needs to be mindful of, and Randall Quarles can certainly increase lending capacity, which maybe would suggest he's more important for the financial sector. But from a Jerome Powell standpoint, from not only domestic but global growth, he has to be mindful of as stuff we've discussed in the past, emerging market debt, $4 trillion in dollar-denominated debt over the past mm-hmm. decade, food and energy costs in the uh, emerging economies. You know, the emerging economies are more than one-half of global GDP, but they're more than, what, 85% of the global population. Exactly. So to the degree that Jerome Powell uh, wants to prevent a global financial crisis, from example, you know, a debt issue, debt repayment issue, but also you don't want to put emerging central bankers in a position where they have to defend their currencies by raising interest rates because our dollar has gotten too strong because the Fed has raised rates too much. And then you have rising food and energy costs throughout the East. You know, that's a very, very challenging dynamic. So there's there, there may be two official mandates for the Fed, employment and price stability, mm-hmm. but there's an unofficial uh, mandate, I believe, which is uh, currency stability. All right. So let's maybe let's dive into that for a second, John, because you said a uh about the yield curve being less flat reminded me of a, a story you've said before, and it's kind of funny, so I'm going to set you up with this. The U.S. dollar here, you know, how, what do you think about the U.S. dollar in 2019, and how is the U.S. dollar similar to when you go to the gym? Oh, yeah, yeah. I love when you say that story. It reminded me when you said that. You're laughing already. Well, it, it, uh, you guys get ready. This is a good story. Yeah, I've only got three jokes, and I use the three all Oh, my goodness. Should we give this away uh, in the overall, podcast? Yeah. I, I didn't mean to do that. That's Sorry. Right. I ruined all my rap. For, 2019, uh, we'll come up with a new third joke. We'll give this one. away now. All right, yeah. fair enough. Well, uh, the analogy I have made is that uh, in 
you know, headlines, media, articles, investors, pundits, you know, anybody we speak with, you know, keep saying the dollar got stronger, the dollar's getting stronger, the dollar's getting stronger. And my contention is the dollar is less weak. You know, if you want to measure the dollar by the DXY, trade weight a basket of currencies, the dollar was strong at 120 mm-hmm. In 2000, 2001, you know, we're, what, 96 today, right. you know, so I just say the dollar's less weak, and the analogy I have used is at 55 years old, when I go to the gym, I don't leave stronger, I leave less weak. So I'm not suggesting the dollar is stronger, I'm suggesting the dollar is less weak. Yeah, I, I think for the holidays this year, I'll have to get you a workout shirt with just the U.S. dollar on it. We'll know what that's it means right. when you go work Jacked. out, you have your dollar on there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that, that's, I think, a pretty good wrap-up. So again, if, if you want more on kind of sectors and where we see things in 2019 after this election, definitely check out our weekly market commentary. Uh, but John, maybe we'll kind of wrap it up like this. I, I did um, a blog last week to kind of look at various charts and what it all means for um, after a potential midterm election, what could happen. The bottom line, and the one I want to focus on, it's interesting. You look at all midterm elections since 1950. The S&P 500 is actually down the month of October on average. Mm-hmm. On average, it's down. And then it still gains almost 7% for the year. Now, does that sound from? I'm not. Who knows where this year will go? But does a d- negative year-to-date October sound familiar? Well, we were just down Absolutely. on October 29th. Was the closing low uh, in the month of October? Down for the year on the S and P. And you know, as we're speaking now, we've had a pretty decent-sized bounce so far. So that's just one thing that you know we've talked about this a lot. That we want our investors to remember: the fourth quarter of a um, midterm year is the strongest quarter out of the four-year presidential cycle, up about 7.8 percent on average. Now, I get it. We just lost 8% in October. Uh, but, you know, think of it like this. The last time the fourth quarter of a midterm was negative was 1994, down less than a percent. And you had to go several more t- cycles before that. The last time we had even more down on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. So normally the fourth quarter is strong, down 8% in October. We'll see. Maybe we can bounce back up, be just slightly positive or so by the end of the year. Do you think it's uh, possible? What do you think there? I do. You did some great work last week or two weeks ago. Well, I mean, obviously, for years I've been doing great work, John. just last week I was the only one I could identify. Um, (laughs) Uh, Don't Google me. There's a lot out there. It's not all good. (laughs) The pivot point was uh, after after hitting a five-month low, having three consecutive back-to-back well, I guess consecutive back-to-back is redundant, so excuse me, everyone. Three consecutive back-to-back <laughs> from the School of Redundancy Department, Department of Redundancy Department, looking at that proving to be an, having been a pivot point. Right. Right. And you yeah, three get straight 1% three updates. Three straight 1% mm-hmm. updates exactly. after a five-month low. Uh, what was the average return, like 10% or something like that? Yeah, just three months. eight weeks. Exactly. Yeah, in a very near term. Three months later, the market's never been lower. Seven mm-hmm. out of seven times, S&P's been higher three months after. Because you can kind of cheat. You say, oh, at the five-month low, if we count those three 1% moves, of course it's a better start. No, no. I started after the third 1% move, which would have, I guess, been November 2nd, if my math is correct and my calendar is correct. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, three months later, S&P's never been lower since 19. 1950 higher, seven out of seven times. So just different ways to look at it, but definitely seasonally, it really matched up well with the late October low and then seasonally strong. And I think that's something to keep in mind. We're going to have very, very challenging headlines that investors are going to have to digest literally every single morning at breakfast, right? And uh, I just encourage everyone to be mindful of not only the seasonal or technical tailwinds that you typically experience post a midterm, whether it's off the October low, whether it's the three quarters following the election, current quarter and the first two quarters of the ensuing calendar year, if you think about the four-year presidential cycle or the 16-quarter presidential election cycle, 
these three quarters are the are the three biggies, and then the third and final technical tailwind would be the 12 months trailing the midterm, not right. not calendar year, but 12 Correct. months. So you have those technical tailwinds. So we'd encourage all investors to think about that because traders are going to trade on the political or volatile headlines. Investors are going to invest on the fundamentals. And while we look for infrastructure, we look for trade, we're mindful of the risks associated with deficit spending. We're mindful of the risk associated with the budget battle and whether some of the tax cuts could be used as a weapon, if you will, in achieving that next debt ceiling uh, debate success. So that's gonna, those are going to be very riskful times, increased scrutiny of the administration. But from uh, an investment standpoint, focus on the fundamentals of call it 25 to 3% economic growth, a Fed that we believe is going to be less aggressive. Consequently, market interest rates will not be as high as we believe the, the market currently fears. And then from an equity standpoint, uh, look for the opportunities in, in value, look for the opportunities in some of the sectors we highlighted. Uh, it's, I know it's kind of weird leaning cyclically in year 10 of an economic cycle, but that's kind of the the way that table has been set for us as a result of monetary policy over the past decade. So again, just focus on the fundamentals, respect the volatility, but a focus on the fundamentals we believe will help investors achieve their long-term goals. No, that's that's great news, John. I mean, obviously the headlines are there, but again, focus on the fundamentals and embrace the volatility are two big themes that we've obviously been mo- remarking for a while now. So John, had a lot of fun this week. Absolutely. Talking about midterms and different things. It was, it, was, it was a good time. Look forward to the next one. I will sign off to you and let you take us home. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us next week when we'll continue to analyze and discuss market signals. Stay connected by following us on Twitter, at LPL, or at LPL Research. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. LPL Market Signals is presented and produced by LPL Financial. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide or to construed as providing specific investment advice or recommendations for any individual security. Any economic forecast set forth in this podcast may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee the strategies promoted will be successful. All performance reference is historical and is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risks, including potential loss of principal. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee return or eliminate risk in all market environments. All information referenced in the podcast is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. This research material was prepared by LPL Financial, LLC, securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA, and SIPC. To the extent you are receiving investment advice from a separately registered independent investment advisor, please note that LPL Financial is not an affiliate of and makes no representation with respect to such entity. The investment products sold through LPL Financial are not insured deposits and are not FDIC, NCUA insured. These products are not bank credit union obligations and are not endorsed, recommended, or guaranteed by any bank, credit union, or any government agency. The value of this investment may fluctuate. The return on the investment is not guaranteed and loss of principal is possible.